Chapters sixty eight through seventy of Taken at the Flood by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sixty eight. Love is enough. Sylvia Perriam had been laid in her foreign grave, and Edmund Standon had gone on to Marseilles before he began to feel that he would have to pay the penalty of his devotion to the dying sinner on the day of his arrival at the southern seaport the grip of the fever fiend fastened on him limbs aching head burning fits of heat and cold aguish shiverings he sent for the best english doctor in marseilles and told him what he had been doing and that he was in for a fever the doctor tried to make light of these apprehensions yet confessed that marseilles was not the safest place a man who had the fever poison in his system could come to is there any one you would like me to write to in the event of your getting worse he asked kindly i don't apprehend such a thing but it's always wise to be equal to either fortune as shakespeare puts it you are very good yes if the worst should come i don't wish to die quite alone in a strange country i'll give you my mother's address when you see danger telegraph to her but on no account before there is danger she is no traveller and the journey to marseilles will be a formidable one for her the doctor promised to obey before the week was ended he saw sufficient peril to justify his sending the telegram to deanhouse a carefully worded telegram cautioning mrs standon against any undue fear i have not waited for the worst said the message but obey your son who told me to summon you directly the case appeared serious the case is serious but by no means desperate come and do not fear within an hour of her receipt of that message mrs standon was on her way to london not alone a faithful friend and companion accompanied her and sustained her with words of hope earnest words breathed from a heart that faith had armed against calamity edmund's struggle for life was severe and protracted his awaking from the long night of delirium was sweet for in the nurse who watched beside his pillow he recognized the mother whose kind face had bent over his cot years ago in the dean-house nursery i have known you all the time mother that was his first rational sentence and indeed there had run through the tangled skein of his delirious dreams that one familiar thread bright and clear through all he had known that his mother watched him he had known the hand that gave him his medicines that administered the food he loathed with tender insistence but there was someone else wasn't there mother he asked before that first day of convalescence was over i seem to have had two nurses you have been carefully nursed edmund replied mrs standon evasively i am sure of that but who was the other nurse a sister of mercy perhaps yes edmund a sister of mercy has she gone away yes she left last night curious i should like to have seen her face now that i have recovered my wits and to have thanked her i have thanked her for you edmund well i suppose that will do i have you with me mother that is enough do you remember that letter in which you told me that you had done with me that i was no longer your son never speak of that dreadful time edmund you see what a mother's anger means in your hour of danger she is by your side oh my dear son i thank god that your heart was not quite turned from me you told the doctor to send for me you could not die without forgiving me forgiving you mother am not i the offender no edmund no i had no right to be so angry with you 
there should be no limit to a mother's forbearance but i tried your patience too much by my folly it is all over now with a sigh i shall never need your forbearance again in that way two or three days after when the invalid was able to sit up in bed propped by pillows mrs standon and her son began to talk of the future it was edmund who started the subject the mother would have feared to touch upon any question that might pain her son newly snatched from the jaws of death shall you want me to go back to deanhouse yet a while mother he asked dutifully i mean to obey you in all things henceforward i have no one else to live for no one else to think of you are all the world to me again the one perfect woman in the world as you used to be when i was a boy would you like to go back edmund he shuddered at the question honestly no mother the old scenes would be hateful but i don't want to be separated from you and it seems a hard thing to ask such a home-loving mother as you to join my wanderings i can have no home without you edmund i am ready to go with you wherever you like i am a sturdy old woman you know and shall not give you much trouble with ill-health or vapours or anything of that kind and little as i have travelled i don't think i shall make a very bad traveller if i can only get accustomed to the sea added mrs standon with a wry face you dear lion-hearted mother i will take care that our wanderings are made easy for you i did think of wintering in algiers a splendid climate interesting scenery mrs standon shivered involuntarily but if you will be my companion i'll abandon all idea of africa mrs standon breathed more freely africa to her mind meant wastes of torrid sand and grim yelping blackamoors dancing round the helpless traveller a circle of ferocious murderers what would you say to our wintering in rome or florence mrs standon brightened visibly and kissed her son's wasted hand i think i should like florence best dear she said i've heard there are plenty of nice english people there yes answered edmund and when english people travel their chief delight seems to be to meet with other english people they would like the continent extremely well if they could exterminate the natives and convert the more agreeable half of europe into one large brighton edmund's convalescence was rapid a fact which the doctor attributed to mrs standon's nursing even more than to his own skill as soon as he was strong enough to bear the journey mother and son went on to nice thence after a fortnight's sojourn to geneva and thence late in november to florence that tranquil close of the declining year was a time of sorrowful thoughts for edmund but not of despair all his boyish love for his mother came back to him in their reunion he was pleased with her delight in the scenes they beheld together pleased by her keen interest in simple things and all those glimpses of village life and unsophisticated nature which their travels afforded them neither spoke of the past or speculated upon the future for the mother the sweetness of the present was all sufficient she had her son once more hers and hers only and she was content to leave the future to providence i will never try to rule his life again she thought i was too anxious that he should marry esther and see what came of it misery for both of them it is enough for me to have him for my own once again and to be sure of his affection the happiness i desire for him will come sooner or later sixty nine five years later five years are gone since edmund standon and his mother wintered in florence and sir aubrey still reigns at parium 
no longer the helpless paralytic old man who could only creep about between the sustaining arms of nurse and valet but a hale old gentleman who rides a quiet cob vice the spirited splinter round the home farm three or four days a week while his chubby six-year-old son accompanies him on a fat exmoor pony this wonderful restoration is more or less shadrach bain's achievement it was mr bain who heard of the mud-baths in germany mr bain who accompanied sir aubrey to the place of those baths mr bain who was the moving spirit of sir aubrey's cure german physicians german mud and german water were but secondary agents mr bain's energy was the motive power that set the machinery going some trace of the old weakness on the left side still remains but despite of this in mind and body the baronet has become a new man it is just possible that his delight in watching his son's growth from infancy to childhood his deep pride in the thought that a son of his will inherit perium and maintain the good old tory traditions of the place may have helped german doctors to work their cure perhaps sir aubrey perium in this indian summer of his age enjoys as near an approach to perfect happiness as heaven ever grants to humanity one bitter memory hangs like a distant thundercloud above the horizon of his life but he is wise enough to shut his eyes to that cloud for the most part and it is not often the dark hour comes upon him that gloomy hour when those who know him best know that he is thinking of his wicked wife his boy is the pride and pleasure of his days already he has engaged a tutor an oxford master of arts to train that tender plant so that its earliest shoots may be wisely directed he cannot endure the thought of public schools and football matches and it is to be feared that the youthful st john brought up at perriam place in the care of a private tutor will be deficient in that athleticism which is the one virtue modern society copies from the spartans the father watches his boy with almost maternal tenderness and is miserable on those winter mornings when st john trots away on his exmoor pony to see the hounds throw off under his tutor's wing the tutor is anxious the boy should be manly and the father approves the tutor's desire yet would fain guard his treasure as carefully as a miser cherishes an unset diamond a gem of liquid light which may slip through his fingers unawares while he gloats over his treasure the county has never quite understood how the brother who was supposed to be dead has come to life again it is one of those dark pages of family history which must forever remain mysterious but the county has not the slightest doubt as to the one fact that this is the real sir aubrey happily the baronet has grown almost his old self since the renovating process of the german baths he dresses as carefully as of old and but for an elderly stoop in the shoulders looks almost as young a man as the sir aubrey who honoured the headingham school feast with his illustrious presence seven years ago mr bain basks in the sunlight of his master's favour and grows more prosperous every year always winding his way deeper and wider into the soil of monkhampton till half the houses in that prosperous town own shadrach bain as ground landlord his elder daughters have married well his sons are an honour to him docker serves his father with zeal that knows not weariness and the younger grammar school boys bring home handsomely bound volumes as prizes such novelties in literature as the poetic works of milton cooper and thompson to adorn the rosewood loo table in the family drawing-room altogether mr bain is a man who seems to have profited more than his fellows by the blindness of fortune yet sometimes even in the midst of his prosperity he thinks with a regretful sigh of that lordly pleasure-house which he once built for his soul that airy edifice of his day-dreams 
which he had hoped to see realized in substantial brick and mortar he remembers how near he had seemed to victory and how utterly he failed how his wisdom had been but foolishness beside a woman's cunning things turned out well for me however after all he reflects after that survey of the one failure that has disfigured his successful life a failure only known to himself and the dead i am in a better position than i ever was in before with sir aubrey my income increases every year i don't see how any man can ask more than that from providence and if i cared to buy myself an estate and called myself squire i am rich enough to do it seventy the purple light of love while poor sir aubrey perriam's existence drifts by in repose almost as tranquil as that of the lotus-eaters on their sunlit isle life has serious duties and responsibilities for mr stanton conservative member for monkhampton a rising young politician of the new school edmund stanton has not returned to the bank at his mother's request he has abandoned that commercial career which served to occupy a mind too active to endure idleness he has found another and a higher vocation in the house of commons where he comes out sharply upon financial questions and perplexes honourable gentlemen whose weak side is arithmetic by searching questions and rapid calculations he is great on taxation and is ever ready to assert the wrongs of those shorn lambs of the legislature those helpless sufferers from the burden of the income tax whose greatest misfortune is to have half a million or so amenable to assessment mr stanton has a small house in one of the nice old-fashioned streets near berkeley square where his wife is at home every thursday evening to some of the pleasantest and cleverest people in london and where mr stanton and two or three chosen friends sometimes seek relief after a dull evening in the house at a bright little supper-table in the cosy dining-room and discuss the blunders and general idiocy of friends and foes over a lobster salad and a bottle of madeira yes edmund is happy that union of which mrs stanton dreamed years ago when her son was a schoolboy has come to pass after all and edmund is as completely devoted to his true wife esther as if the fatal attachment which overshadowed his youth were no more than the memory of a dream two years of foreign travel and much hard study in the tranquil pauses of his wandering served to lay the ghost of that buried love he came back to england heart-free and brought with him a treatise on finance which has won him some renown as a political economist and helped him to acquire a position in the house of commons during those two years of exile edmund and esther never met miss rochdale remained at dean house the ruling spirit of order in that model household quietly doing her duty visiting the sick feeding the poor educating mrs sargent's children who adore her joining in the small festivities of the neighbourhood and uttering no complaint against a life which must have been somewhat joyless and monotonous throughout that period of absence edmund had rarely heard the name of esther so carefully did his mother avoid any allusion to her adopted daughter only when he ventured to inquire if miss rochdale were well and happy was the name spoken that had once been so familiar on his first visit to dean house after his return from the continent mr stanton looked round for esther and missed her he was told that she had gone to wexmouth with the children mrs sargent having been afraid the sea air would be too strong for her the sea air always gives me my nervous headache you know edmund said ellen apologetically so dear essie was kind enough to take the children she was always kind replied edmund moodily it vexed him to think that esther had run away in order to avoid meeting him that visit to exmouth could only have been a pretext 
one week in september would do as well as another for the children's seaside trip and why choose the week of his return unless she really wished to avoid him have i made myself so detestable to her that she cannot endure the sight of me even after all i have suffered thought mr standen she used to be so full of pity especially for wrong-doers there was one question which he wanted to ask esther a question that had been in his mind more or less ever since his illness at marseilles a question which he could only ask when they two were face to face the thought of this question worried him a good deal during the first day or two at dean house it took such a hold upon his mind that after three days of that tranquil home life after having admired all miss rochdale's small improvements in poultry-yard dairy and greenhouses the new fernery at the end of the shrubbery and a dozen other evidences of taste and industry which testified to the care of the gentle home goddess edmund's patience would endure no longer and he startled his mother on the fourth morning by announcing that he was going to wexmouth to see esther and the children those scraps of humanity must have grown out of all knowledge in the last two years he said artfully insinuating thereby that his chief anxiety was to see his small nephew and nieces georgie is growing a fine boy edmund said his sister proudly and so like his dear papa he has the sergeant nose a fine prominent beak looks as if it was made on purpose for a barrister's wig replied mr standen irreverently he was off to exmouth by a little branch line from monkhampton before noon and arrived at that tranquil and retired watering-place at one o'clock wexmouth is not extensive and instead of going to miss rochdale's lodging on lighthouse hill edmund strolled along the beach taking his chance of finding her among the idlers who were scattered in groups here and there upon the strip of alternate sand and shingle between the blue water and the sea-wall the tide was out and the juvenile patrons of wexmouth were having a good time with their pails and spades no one would stay indoors on such a day as this edmund thought the sky one cloudless blue the sea a sunlit lake he went on to the utmost limits of wexmouth feeling very sure that he should find esther by and by yes there she was a lonely little figure seated in the shadow of an old fishing-boat reading he knew her ever so far away the small graceful form the pure white dress the dark soft hair under the little sailor hat the esther of old times the esther he had once so narrowly escaped loving with all his heart too late to love her now gentle and unselfish as she was he could hardly ask her to accept a love which would seem at best remorse the children were paddling and splashing and making themselves gritty at the edge of the water some distance from esther instead of rushing straight to these small people to see if they had verily grown out of knowledge and if georgie really had the sergeant nose this traitorous uncle never so much as looked at those amphibious revellers but walked on to the boat and quietly seated himself about half a yard from esther she did not even look up from her book the shelter of the boat was public property yet it was uncomfortable to have a stranger seated so near her and in a few minutes esther rose to join the children whose sports were becoming more and more watery a hand gently detained her the stranger had risen too and had laid his hand upon her arm esther why are you so determined to run away from me he asked quietly she turned and confronted her false lover very pale there was no anger in the sweet face only a look of shocked surprise sit down again esther and let us talk quietly for a few minutes friend sister 
will you refuse me so small a favour that appeal touched her she obeyed him without a word and they seated themselves side by side under the shadow of the boat edmund was slow to speak so slow that the silence became a little awkward and esther felt herself obliged to say something what brought you to exmouth edmund she asked carelessly i hope ellen isn't anxious about the children ellen knows the children are safer in your keeping than in hers essie the old pet name fluttered that steadfast heart a little i came here on my own account do you know that for the last two years i have been tormenting myself with one particular question indeed it ought to be a very important question it is to me a question of life or death when i was ill at marseilles esther i had two nurses my mother was one i knew her even at the worst but the other i used to fancy that her presence was but a dream it was not a dream was it essie there was a second nurse who watched me night and day and wept many tears for my sake who was that faithful nurse esther i want you to tell me dare i believe that the one noble-hearted woman i had most deeply wronged came to me out of the benevolence of her heart in my time of danger not out of benevolence edmund said esther it could not have been for love of me she came oh esther cried edmund stand and seizing the girl's two hands drawing her towards him looking at her with eyes that shone with love and hope if you can but say that it was you will make me happier than i ever dreamed i could be love my love truly loved at last tell me that i have not outworn your patience not quite exhausted your regard tears were his only answer an all-sufficient answer it would seem for in the silver moonlight of that september evening two happy lovers walked upon wexmouth's shingly shore and talked of the future the future came and did not belie their hopes when autumn's first glory gilds the woods sober old dean-house wakes up to a new life with the arrival of mr and mrs standen their babies and nurses their friends and followers the old monotony of that orderly household is pleasantly broken and the dowager mrs standen finds life full of new interests she is proud of her son's success as a public man and amongst the choicest treasures in her sandalwood desk cherishes the report of his speeches which esther has cut out of the times to send to grandmamma ellen sargent looks on placidly at her brother's happiness while georgie and the two girls pet and patronize their baby cousins and only murmurs now and then with a gentle sigh what an interest poor dear george would have felt in edmund's parliamentary career thus the peaceful domestic life flows on happy and not unuseful not that empty unprofitable life which goethe has called worse than an early death end of chapters sixty eight through seventy the end of taken at the flood by mary elizabeth braddon recorded by celine major